1: Welcome to That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Dante Stewart about his new book, Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. Dante is a graduate of Clemson University, where he was a cornerback on their football team. Currently, he is a theology student at Emory University. He is an accomplished speaker and writer in the areas of race, religion, and politics. This is his first book. Dante, welcome to That Said.
2: Thank you, brother. Great to be with you, man.
1: So I'd like to start these interviews by asking if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. What was it like growing up in Calhoun County, South Carolina, and your upbringing?
2: Yeah, indeed. So where I'm from, I always like to tell people I am very much a country boy. I am raised in the rural South, uh, the Black rural South in South Carolina. Um, I was just home the other week. And one of the things I do when I go home is always go to the gas station that is behind my church, that, that that's in the church of my upbringing, and I go and I speak to VJ, one of my one of my dudes who who who's the owner, and I would also just stop in and grab me some potato wedges. I don't really do meat like that, so I can't do like the uh, chicken wings no more and the chicken tenders nor occasionally I do the, um, livers, uh, and hot sauce. And, and my book has that in it. Cause that's so much of us. Um, and, and so much of my upbringing was about family. Uh, it was about sports. It was about church. It was about running outside and being outside, getting off the game. Uh, don't, don't be playing games all day, working with my daddy on Saturday mornings. Uh, so my, my upbringing, was, was a very beautiful thing. And I think about my upbringing and I look back on it it, in, in so much love and thankfulness that, that I was given so much, that so much was instilled in me, that so much was just handed to me in my imagination that I realized that I'm still like trying to figure out that lingering right now in these moments as a writer, as a thinker, as a minister, as a husband, as a father, Um, As a student and a scholar, I'm I'm still trying to make sense of the lingering and interpret the lingering in these moments right now.
1: Mm. And you were raised in the Black Pentecostal church. So can you tell us a little bit about that church and and how you were raised within the
2: church? They called you as as a kid growing up, church boy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So my teammates actually called me church boy in my high school. And they did that because they knew that we in my black Pentecostal church, we would be in church all day. I was a drummer as well. So I play drums. And so they knew that I love music. I love gospel music. I love drummers and things like that. So they called me church boy because they knew like, hey, after Dante Lee practice and they called me. That's actually why I got my nickname Stu. So everybody called everybody used to call me Stu. They knew that like after practice, you know, even if I was sweaty. Cause we, we really took no showers after practice as, as young kids back, back where I'm from in college, we did, but not, not in high school. They knew that after practice at the football practice or after track practice, we would go straight to Bible study. Uh, We would go straight to church. We'll go straight to prayer meeting. And so much of the church that I was raised in as a black Pentecostal church, that is where I first fell in love with church as an experience uh, because so much of. How they thought about faith or religion was about what they made in their own worlds in response to or in resistance to the world that they came from. So, so many, if we think about the social demographic of that community, so many of the people that I was raised around were black working class rural folk. Um, and, and that has a particular way of how you, it shapes a, a particular way of how you see the world or how you see yourself. So there's something about the kind of extravagantness of church, of the expressiveness of church. And then you put in a Pentecostal expressiveness. I mean, every Sunday you're in your best suit. You're in. You're you're smelling your best. You you're at your best for that two or three hours. You're in a in, inside of that space. You're giving it everything that you have, and you're free in the process. So whether you standing up and giving your testimony about the week and how God came through, or whether you were confessing and repenting in public, you were doing that. But everybody had freedom. But then it's also a complex story too, because so much of my upbringing was very much based in patriarchy and bad religion where people would get treated bad or seen bad because they wouldn't kind of measure up to this standard that none of us could measure up to. So when I look at the ways in which I was kind of raising this black Pentecostal space, on the one hand, I saw a church that was so grounded in the experience of, you know, black expressiveness and black ordinariness and just black love and black joy Uh, and liberation and just uh, such a deep concern about how we feel once we leave. But then also, uh, it was also a movement that took so much from us as children, as adults, that I'm still even trying to make sense of today.
1: It's interesting, the Black Pentecostal holiness liberationist movement. In its early years, one of its early tenets was pacifism. And the Black Pentecostal church was Opposed to World War One and its leaders were jailed. For it. And then later on, with the the Great Migration, the Pentecostal churches served as the place for people who moved north to meet. Mm-hmm. James Baldwin mm-hmm. writes about it, right? In "Go Tell It on the Mountain," he was raised mm-hmm. in that
2: Pentecostal storefront church in Harlem, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And you know the thing about "Go Tell on the Mountain" that I absolutely love, which so much of my work is centered on. James Baldwin, there's this one line inside of Go Tell on the Mountain that I just, it, it makes me chuckle because it reminds me so much of my upbringing where Roy is talking with one of the characters. Roy is talking to his mother, and he's like, Yo, you only think that in life there's nothing but jails and churches. And so, even though the Black Pentecostalism was very much had a liberationist focus, the experience of Black Pentecostalism, It was a very complex experience where so much it was like, yo, like there's danger, there's discipline, there's your duty to the church and things like that. But then there's also, as Baldwin so beautifully writes about in the threshing floor, there is this space where we are together and we are one and we are in tune with God, in tune with spirit, in tune with love so deeply that whatever way we come inside of this church, Whatever we experience in this moment going to change how we leave. And then once we leave, then we should do something about the world that we live in. I'm reminded of William Seymour, who was one of the founders of Pentecostalism, Black Pentecostalism. Where in his critique of white Pentecostalism, whom was very much uh, racist and and Charles Parham, when he came to L.A., he saw that revival. Who, he called it crude Negroisms. And William Seymour was like, yo, if your Pentecostal baptism in all these tongues does not allow you to embody love, then your Pentecostalism is nothing. Um, and I'm so grateful that my upbringing, as Baldwin wrote about in Go to Tell It on a Mountain, is about the embrace and acceptance of who we are as Black people and what we have to offer to the world, but then also about dreaming about alternative possibilities of the way the world can become.
1: You write that to hear your mom recite scripture is to hear the voice of God upon us in a land that has never truly loved us as black people and that she Mm. was speaking this language of prayer and hope and resistance and creation to protect us and to cover us.
2: Mm. Yeah. And like, even yes, my mama, that is definitely, that definitely is my mama. And even to this, to this day, my mama still covers me in that type of language. Um, And, and, and when I think about, the ways in which my mama saw this Bible. We talk about sacred texts a lot as people. We talk about these stories that give us meaning, but then what I saw that text as complex, as problematic as it is, as beautiful as it is, that text did something to my mother. When she read it, it made her come alive in ways like that did something to her body. That there's something to the way she saw the world, that there's something to the way that she wanted to see herself as a Black woman within this society, having to teach her Black children how to grow up and mature and be better. So, like when she recited the scripture, it was as if these stories were our stories. So, the same way she would tell stories as she does to this day about Uncle Walton or you know, as she, as uh, Uncle Pepper or Grandma Charlotte Mitchell was the same way people would tell these stories of Jeremiah and Esther and Isaiah. So their lives had something worth telling. And the same kind of cadence that she used when she spoke these words of in the sacred text was very much the same way she saw us. And I loved it.
1: Mm. You say that Notwithstanding all of the discussions of love and the like that we've just talked about, your parents made sure that you knew how fragile the balance of your lives were. And they taught you and your siblings, as you say, to talk right, to act right, to make sure that trouble and your name stayed out of the same sentence,
2: which is a great line. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for noticing that line. I, I, I was like when I first wrote that line, I was like, Yeah, I like that one. That's a good line right there. But then also, I mean, it's it's really a part of like life that 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 you know I look at my childhood and I had an incredible childhood. Like I had a beautiful childhood. And I think, you know, when people start talking about like black childhoods in general it's as if people think like we only have hard lives and yes, life is hard, you know, but I'm thinking about Imani Perry, when Imani Perry cites, um, when Imani Perry says uh, that racism is terrible. Blackness is not. So I had a beautiful childhood, but then also given that beautiful childhood, there was also so many areas where even us being blessings as children were oftentimes seen as burdens on our parents' hearts. So in order to make sure that our name stay out of bad sentences, whereby I mean, okay, this person is a quote unquote troublemaker, or this person has got locked up, or this person has gone to prison, or this person is dead before their time. Those type of trouble sentences. In order to protect us and to keep us from that, Oftentimes they had to harm us in the process. I was talking to my daddy today, actually on my way to Atlanta. I asked my daddy, I was like, dad, like being raised in Dillon, South Carolina, have you ever thought about love and what does it mean to be a black man your age and the framework of love? And my daddy, as soft-spoken as he is, said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't ever think so. My daddy is a a baby of the 50s, 60s, 70s. So my daddy is up in age. He's gone through things. He's seen things. And I think about what it does to us as people and what we make others endure because oftentimes our ideas of love are often non-existent or oftentimes those ideas of love are built on protection. And sometimes it's got to hurt in the process. And so even though like there was so much good, you know, as I talk about that lingering earlier, there are still those memories that still linger.
1: Yeah. It's interesting when you talk of memories, because you wrote a line, another line, I have your book completely like underlined as if I was going to take an exam on it. (laughs) Oh Um, man,
2: that's love. Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah. Well, I like the book a lot. Um, you wrote over your grandma, which I thought was really a great line. Which She says, she rarely likes to talk about it, but she remembers. And then you talk about the importance of remembering. Toni Morrison, James Baldwin write about how important it is to remember the stories. But you say about your grandma, she rarely likes to talk about it, but she remembers. So talk a little bit about your grandma, because she was an important... Figure in your your being raised as a child.
2: Yes, I love my, let me first start off like that. I absolutely love my grandma. Her name is Margaret Elizabeth Albert. My grandma will be 90 years old this year. My grandma is absolutely an incredible, beautiful, brilliant, spectacular black woman. And my grandfather just passed and they had been married. Would have been going on 62 years this year before he passed. I went home and I go home often nowadays, especially since we've been dealing with so much loss at home. I went home and, and I found my grandma was like in the back. I was like, yo, where grandma at? And and they was like, she in the back. And I found grandma in the back, in the back of the room going through old documents well, she gave me one of the documents because my grandma knew I was coming and my grandma, she, because she knows I'm a writer because, she know, I love to interview people because, she know, I need these kind of artifacts. So she, she, she making sure that every time I come home, she has something for me to take back with me, either story, piece of paper, whatever. My grandmother was going through old documents and she pulls out this little folded piece of paper in an L shape and it, and it folds out. and On it is their marriage license. And it says their race is colored. their nationality is American. When I think about containing that document, that her identity, her reality in this country has oftentimes been, you are colored, you are American, but there's no crossover in that. You don't get to define yourself, but you are oftentimes defined by the limitations that this country has made you endure. And then I think about endurance because memory is not just locked in our mind, but it's locked in our bodies. So when I think about all that my grandmother has endured as a domestic worker, as a factory worker my grandmother has oftentimes done the best for people who believe the worst about her and the worst about other people around her and actually made her and other people around her endure the worst that they had to offer. So whenever I, as a writer, want to talk to grandma and I got my little pen and pad and I want to interview her, it's hard because she still remembers so much that she's gone through. But then I love also about my grandmother, which is also true of my granddaddy. Black people during this, this time, and I think this is in general, like back in the day, you know, as, as generations have passed, people pass down things and, and meticulously write down names and numbers and notes and things like that. My grandmother collects everything. And I think about me asking her, like, "Yo, Grandma, like, how you do this in 2020?" Uh, I was like, "How you do hey, it? I don't know how to do this. I don't. I need some help. Like, you, you got to help me. I need you to talk about things." And she really likes to talk about it because it's so hard to deal with. Even though she knows that I must deal with it, she would rather preserve so many stories and kind of let me get lost in them. And so I love that about my grandmother.
1: You said to your grandma once, you wrote in the book, you said, Grandma, I don't know if I know how to survive. So oh, you thanks. want you want her memories of that which she went through to help you, you write, know how to survive.
2: Do I have that right? Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Because I'm always asking questions. I'm asking as I get older and I have my own children and now that I built my own life, I'm I'm so shocked almost that the same conversations that they have had to have in the 60s and 70s, 80s, 90s are the same conversations and realities that they have to experience and we have to experience with them now in the 2020s. It's like not only has her grandmother and her mother and, and her children had to endure the worst, but they have to endure the worst with their children and their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren. And I asked my grandma, like, yo, how do you do it? How do you do this? And she don't like to talk about it. But the other thing, I feel like she is telling me, like she is showing me how to survive. And that is showing up for us every single day. When my granddaddy got dementia, when, when dementia started to take over my granddaddy mind, I would talk to my grandma from time to time, and she would tell me about, it may be time to put him in a home and I don't know when I'm gonna put him in a home or not. And she always would say that she would, that she does not want to put him in a home either because she doesn't want to kind of throw her husband on somebody else, or she talks about the distance. Like you don't know where they're going to end up at and things like that. And I see when my, at my grandfather's funeral, my grandmother stand over his body, touch him close down the casket. My granddaddy stayed at home for the duration of his battle against dementia. And when I think about that moment, and it just burned into my memory, my grandma was showing me how to survive. You got to keep your hands on something that you love. You never want to get out of touch with what makes you feel precious. You want to make sure that you don't give up on those whom are around you. So if they're your family, you take care of them. You do what you have to do in your power. You do what you have to do to make sure that even if they don't know themselves, you know them and you're going to treat them like the person you remember. And when I think about that, even though she didn't want to tell me how to survive, she taught me so much more about survival and love than I ever could have talked about.
1: Mm, It's great. I want to move forward a little bit. Cool. To, to 2010 and you enroll in Clemson University yes. and I want to talk about that but I want to read one thing to you that you wrote again I'm going to keep reading to you from your book even cool. though it's your book <laughs> sounds great to me you go, you go off to Clemson and you, you write the folks back home your family says I'm going to give you two pieces of advice yeah. one is Don't bring home no white girl, and two, get you somebody who loves Jesus. And and, uh, tell us, and and you did just that. So tell us a little bit about about your mom and your grandparents. Tell us about Jasmine, your wife.
2: Yeah, my wife, my wife is amazing. To start off, I'll tell you about my wife now, and we can work backwards. So my wife is currently in the Air Force. She is absolutely amazing. Um, I'm a military spouse. My my wife, she is she's bold and so brilliant. She reminds me so much, her temperament is so much like my grandmother. Um, It's almost like this kind of quiet confidence. And though quiet is a signifier of sound and, and a certain type of audibleness. So like gesturing toward like, what do you hear? But I also think quiet is about like, what do you feel? So when I think about jazz music, even though there's like a like a loudness to it the expressiveness there's also like a quiet confidence about what they're doing John Coltrane Miles Davis there's a quiet confidence about how they move Nina Simone a quiet confidence how they move around so when I think about them I think about my wife who very much was raised similar uh to I to to me but my wife I I think she saw things in me that I didn't see in myself whether you're talking about me being an athlete and things like that, cause she—I never forget. My wife was like, "I ain't dating no athlete. <laughs> I am not dating an athlete." Uh, but you know, ten years later, being together and eight years married, I'm glad she at least made a um, a break in that rule. Uh, and so we we met in gospel choir uh, back in college. Uh, we both were at Clemson. She was singing. I was playing drums and. Yeah, I'll never forget. You know, being at a being in a concert and me sliding in her Facebook DMs, uh, and and just talking with her and things like that. And so, the rest was really history. Is is that we just clicked? We just really clicked. I mean, she got me; I got her. Just very good friends.
1: But the thing that was interesting is, you said of meeting her in gospel choir that at gospel choir it was a place where black students on a white campus came to connect with one another. It was sort of a, a sanctuary. Oh, yes. In, in a way. And we'll talk a little bit about Clemson and your experience there. But it was interesting to me how it was an extension of home in yes. a sense for you, the, yes. the gospel choir group.
2: Yes. Yes, 100%. Because you have to realize like like Clemson, the, 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 there, is, there is Clemson then there's like black student athlete Clemson. And then there is black Clemson. And those three things are like, there's continuity between the, the three, but there's serious discontinuity. So like as black student athletes, we we are around enough of us on a day-to-day basis. I mean, like black folk, we're around enough of us on a day-to-day basis. But in as black students at Clemson, only like six or 7% of the student body population you have to really be active in carving out those spaces. So like, I'll never forget, like when my friends would pledge in fraternities or sororities, we would go to to see them cross and like, it would literally feel like an HBCU. We It would be us. It would be our music. We, I, it just would be us. And so to create that space in a space that's not built for us, the university context is Clemson. You know, it was not built With us in mind, we came there, you know, Harvey Gantt was the first black student at Clemson University, and this would bring an influx of black people years and years and years after that, you know, but if you didn't create that space, then that space wouldn't be yours so like when we went to gospel choir it was so reminiscent of. So many of the various Black faith and religious traditions that we came from, so that that love of gospel music, and really music in general, which is a great connector of people, uh, music was the way that we found solace inside of this space. Which I would suggest that Clemson is very much a hostile space to Black folk because the space, so many people in the space, oftentimes either render us invisible or they render us mute like they're not listening to us they come from their various home play, places of home with stereotypes about who we are then they're in their own social networks but then we're, we render in, invisible they don't really see us like that and so we have to force ourselves to be seen or either we are forced to be seen when somebody like Trayvon Martin happens uh somebody like Mike Brown happens something like George Floyd Sandra Bland or uh, Brianna Taylor or Micaiah Bryant speaking of these recent examples then we are quote unquote seen but then we're seen through this medium of like death and or like on Black History Month when, when people want to sing our songs and things like that it's like you don't really you're not really seeing or hearing from like the everyday beauty and the power of blackness but when you go to gospel choir you're seeing it and we're fumbling our way through it I mean, we just like college kids, just trying to hold on to whatever we come from at school. I mean, from our from home, we're trying to hold on to it at school. We're trying to help one another. we we just creating community. Like, we would literally, like, go to gossip Choir and be there for hours. I mean, God, con- rehearsal would be over, but so many of us would still hang out because that's how we build life. That was familiar, and that was us. It's us. It's what we do, and it feels like us. It sounds like us. Though And as well, it was an inviting space. So it's it's something that we held on to. So yeah, it really was a way to for us to like commune and build life together in the midst of a space that oftentimes didn't see us or love us.
1: Just so the listening audience knows, one of the most remarkable things that you've done is you walked on to the Clemson football team. Oh, yeah. And you made it. Number 27, right?
2: Uh, 37, 37, 37, 37. Yeah, 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 yeah. 37. I'll never forget the first day, man. I was I was in my white shirt and my and my short, my khaki shorts and my loafers. And me and my boy GP walked up together and introduced ourselves, and we went into the big way in and the rest was history. Mm, it's great. But you wrote something that was poignant about it.
1: And you said that your coach said to you, everybody has a place here. And you believed it. But it's not exactly as it turned out. You right that not everybody had a home that we thought it would be.
2: 100. I'm talking particularly about black student athletes on white campuses. So like I'm playing with language right there. Like everybody got a place here, but not everybody had the home that we thought it would be. So when, when I did that, I was playing with language. And I was thinking particularly about the ways black student athletes i sold this dream. We are the best thing that has ever happened to the university and that this university is the best thing that can happen to us. And so even though we talk about it, we don't really be like messing with it like that about the ways in which the process of recruiting oftentimes is very much like back in the day in the plantation where people are looking at us at our physical physique based on how they can gain economically how they can gain capital social cultural capital by our bodies and our labor and we're told like yo you got a home here you're gonna be like you good you sold a dream but then oftentimes when when we find out like when we go to these places oftentimes we find out that we are not loved in ways that we thought we would be loved but we brought into a situation where everything is about competition. And I I wanted to write in my book, particularly about like black masculinity. So there's this narrative, this theme of black male self-love that is woven within my literature, uh, within my book, whether you're talking about how we learn black male self-love on the football field or how we learn it in the context of our communities and our homes. But on the football field, we learn like this trust of one another that my teammate who come from a gutter, just like me, who come from a rural town, just like me, who come from lack of opportunity, just like me. And we finally get here and we make it quote unquote success in these spaces. But then it's like, okay, now you're one of us. And so you got to, like, you need to leave back home. So you're told this, like your boys from back home, you know, you need to leave them boy behind because, you know, not all of them going to mean good for you. So when we hear this message, this messaging, this package, I often wonder and wanted to write about in this session, what does it do to us? And what does it mean to now pick up from home, the home that we knew and now make our home here on this white college campus, which oftentimes only likes us to the degree that we are producing for them. And not just simply because we're human, young boys just trying to make it
1: in life. You write that at Clemson, you learn to survive by distrust, as you've just said, and that the white structure sort of demanded it. And what was most telling about what you wrote, and this is what I'd like you to flesh out a little bit, you write that it was really more than just distrust, but it was Mm self-hating. They taught some form of self-hatred as a form Mm -hmm. of Survival. You are not like them. We are Mm -hmm. different. You are the exceptional one or you get erased.
2: Yeah. 100. 100. I think that is a part of the self hatred is that we believe that our names on the back of our jerseys are the thing that make us matter in this world. Like we are caught up in a system where we see the person next to us who often come from the same place as us. We, we see them as a friend, but never too close. We teammates, but like, if it come down to it, hey, it's always going to be me. It ain't never really going to be us. And until we learn that, we oftentimes do things that are harmful to ourselves. So I think about self-hatred, not just simply in the language of harm, harming yourself, I think self-hatred is also about the ways in which we devalue ourselves and reduce ourselves. So when we reduce ourselves to one thing, we're hating the fullest possibilities of what we can become. When we believe these limitations that people put on us and these stereotypes that they put on us, like when people find out that I'm actually a former athlete who played at a major university, had a great time there. And now I'm an author. And when I tell them that, it's like, oh, I've never seen that ever. I'm like, yo, have you not heard of like, <laughs> like, not the awesome or like Michael Bennett or like, I can like keep name it, calling Ka- like, like, and that's just like recent. There's so many of us who have done incredible things beyond the game. And so I think self-hatred is also about reducing ourselves, but also devaluing ourselves and being skeptical of one another, you know, it's being skeptical of, of the ability for us to actually be loving rather than be against one another. So I tell this story of my teammate DJ and how I learned to hate somebody who looked like me and the context was in competition where he came in and he was going to take my spot and he actually ended up taking it you know because i end up running and leaving and transferring and, and doing this practice he's saying i ain't about to i ain't about to leave i ain't about to move i ain't about to move so i'm over here like hey bro you're gonna have to, hey we, you either move or we're gonna fight it just is what it is you either move or one of us gonna make one another move And now years later, looking at that event and the way it shaped how I thought about us, I write that, yo, like this was the first time I think I hated somebody who was black. And this was the first time I wanted to destroy somebody the same way we either saw or were taught that white people learned to destroy us. And that was to take away our agency, to take away our protection, to take away the clout that came with being in this context. And though we had to move different, I didn't realize just how horrible those moves we made meant being more skeptical of ourselves than the system that forces us against one another. And when I look down in hindsight, I really wish now and learning now that I would have loved him instead of distrusting him. I would have realized that, our struggle was so much more than how well we could produce. It was so much more than how well we could like how, how much our names were known in this, in this world, how often we would have realized that like our struggle was not against one another, but it really was trying to find ways for children because that's who we are in that moment. Find ways for children, young men who are children who are growing, who are maturing to reach the fullest possible potential that they have without becoming toxic in the process and years later talking to my teammates those who left who either went to the league or did it I realized that that context that dynamic shaped us and destroyed more than we actually realize in this
1: period you also had another sort of moment which lasted a while where you are involving yourself in the white Christian college fellowship oh, yeah. and you start attending white mega church and you start thinking about yourself in different terms. And mm-hmm. can you talk about this? Because there's a, it's going to become a point in our conversation where we see this pivot. So we've seen, yeah. you, we've seen you at home and we've mm-hmm. seen the importance of the lessons that you learned at home. Mm-hmm. Then you go to Clemson and there's this competition, this distrust, this self-hating that's being sort of micro-inserted into you. And in this mm-hmm. moment, you're also beginning to attend this white Christian fellowship and it's changing your thinking. It's changing the way mm-hmm. you look at yourself and mm-hmm. the types of approval
2: that you mm-hmm. look for. So you talk about this. This was a very interesting part of your life. Yeah. 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 It's very interesting. And I'm still trying to make sense of it. One of the things like I noticed was that those, because one of the things we were told is, as children, like when we go off, like make sure you get spiritually grounded, make sure you get connected to a church and things like that. But then at a in a predominantly white institution context, especially if you're an athlete, when you're talking about being spiritually fed, when you're talking about these communities that you, you create, oftentimes those religious spaces or spiritual spaces are predominantly white or connected to white institutions. And so those institutions are not neutral. They have stories, they have frameworks, they have theologies, they have traditions that's wrapped up into these institutions that want to turn you into a certain type of person. And research would suggest that The more that those who come from marginalized communities get involved in white social spaces, the more that they individualize their racial identity and the more that they individualize their kind of solidarity with that larger racial group. So it's like this context of assimilation. So, when I'm playing football at Clemson, it's like, yo, all right, let's just go to like FCA and things like that. And so it was different when I walk in, it's like big. And then going to new spring, it was big and live and, and different. And it was like low commitment. And for me, like church was out in like an hour. I was good. I was good. I was used to church being two and a half, three hours. Like everybody, like, you know, having to go up to the front and get prayer. So it was different. And so I was excited about a different kind of source of like religious space that I could find myself in what I did not realize was as much as I was going into this space, this space was also going inside of me and we're not just individuals, but we're also a reflection of the communities that we find ourselves in. So whenever I'm inside of this space, all I'm seeing is like white preachers, white theologians, white sermons, white music. And over time, the message becomes this is right because this is what's held up as desirable. And so the more I got engaged in these spaces, the more I invested in these spaces, the more I believed a lie that, you know, I was Christian before I was black. And then that just turned into all types of terribleness for me.
1: You said that attending this white church and sort of, Feeling comfortable with what was a lie brought your name closer to the mouths of white people and further away from the lives of your own people, and mm-hmm. that it had a powerful appeal because it was in your're thinking at the time the cost of making it in the white world
2: facts facts facts, and it's very much built on this kind of competition that we go into this context of competition that the more these people who make decisions for your lives talk about you, the better you are. So the more that they celebrate your goodness and your skill set on the field, the closer you're going to make it to the lead. You know, if they ain't talking about you, then you don't really matter. It's not what have you done, but it's like what have you done for me lately? So it's like what have you, what are you giving me to talk about? What are you giving me to benefit from? And so this whole kind of affirmation that we're seeking, because I think about the way we were raised and so much of our own upbringing is about proving who we're not and proving who we can become. And so when you're in a situation where you are always having to prove yourself and you're always having to make yourself marketable and make sure that you're keeping yourself ready so that other people can kind of see you and, and put you in a position where you're achieving success, then you will become all types of things for people. You will do all types of things. You will believe all types of lies. Lies, and so that's why I t- named that chapter "Wages," because there's always a cost and there's always a price to pay. I didn't realize that what this would cost me was connection with my people. I mean, it was connection with them and disconnection from my people. That I didn't realize how powerfully it would shape my ideas about my own self, about blackness, about and about whiteness. That over time, I started, I really believe that whiteness was to be viewed as sacred, but then black folk and blackness in the worlds we created was to be viewed through skepticism. And so that lies at the heart of what I utilize as the language of the lie, is that white people, as Eddie Galar writes so beautifully about, that white people matter more, whether it's their affirmation, whether it's their resources, whether it's their protection. These people, I believe in this moment, was going to get me where I needed to be socially, sports-wise, spiritually, et cetera. And I gave them what they desired. And that was my presence and my trust.
1: And you write that the wages would come. But at that point in time, all you wanted was the power and access that you believed that white acceptance afforded you. I was too concerned about losing the position that I had in white churches too concerned about losing the praise that white people gave me, it was too much to give up. I was not willing to lose it. In fact, you were baptized again. You were baptized in the Black <laughs>
2: Pentecostal Church. You, yeah. got, you
1: got baptized again.
2: Yes, and and that is and, and even thinking about that moment, bro, is like traumatic for real. Because like me and my mom, we argued about that, and so many of these stories that I wrote in this book, I felt like I needed to write but also like they're hard to think about because they did so much damage to myself and others. This is a part of like, I think the wages, the residual is that I have to continually live with how I became terrible and what I did to others. And yes, I changed, but you also still remember those moments. So like Bessa van der Kolbe would say, like the body keeps the score. Like the body remembers. So I still remember that moment that even as I came up out of that water, and I write that, you know, I became a baptized disciple of whiteness. And what I mean by that is when I came out of those waters, it was almost like the deal was sealed. Like I was fully invested in building whatever they wanted me to build at the expense of myself, at the expense of others. I mean, even at the expense of my own wife. Like I write in the book that. I end up loving white people more than I love my black wife. A lot of times people think about like, you know, just simply like active things, but it's not just simply active stuff. When I talk about loving white people more than black people, loving white people more than my black wife, I'm talking particularly about the ways in which I did things and cared more about how white people felt rather than how, I made my wife and others actually feel.
1: Mm. You come to a a tipping point around 2016. You're sort of preparing to become a minister in this white evangelical church that you're attending. But you say that the professors, the theologians you're studying with never really took seriously the life of the black body in America. And then... Mm -hmm there's the murder of Alton Sterling. And can you talk a little bit about the impact that had on you and what you were hearing in your church? I mean, this was a a young man who was Mm. flat out murdered.
2: Yeah. um,
1: 100%. His crime was being black.
2: And um,
1: you look at this and you start realizing something about the people you're studying with learning from and the congregants in your church mm-hmm. and the whispers that mm-hmm. that are going on. So maybe you could talk about because this is like the beginning of like you're going to yeah, start coming, unraveling. You're going yeah, to yeah. come home
2: soon. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming home, and and that's the tough, and that's the you know for me that's the beautiful part about this journey. It's very hard. It is a very hard journey. It's a very honest and a vulnerable journey, but it's a journey where I actually do make it home. It's almost like this story. I love Greek mythology and I just love incredible stories in general, but there is something about the odyssey that just keeps coming back to me about this journey. That's very messy. That's hard. That's not heroic. That is so encumbered by failure. That's so encumbered by trauma and pain, but also the kind of beautiful parts of the ways we are courageous and face ourselves and face what we become. And that is what I think, Just invigorates me about my own story is that even as I think about all of the suffering and the pain and the trauma that my eyes beheld, my eyes also held something else, and that's how I saw us as beautiful and worthy of actually talking about and centering. And this was the problem in the white church I centered them so much, I centered their theologians, I centered their feelings, I centered their thoughts. I became so many type of things, so many different things, almost like in order to be loved in so many different spaces, I recreated myself to fit that space. And so I'm leading this group, this, this small group, majority white people, and they're talking about race. With, I'm, I'm the young black dude that's to lead the group on race, just like this kind of diversity and inclusion initiative. Uh, you get the person who is... Um, I'm inside leading this group and I realized like what my mama and my grandma and my granddaddy and my daddy would always say is that, you know, white people talk different amongst themselves and amongst people who make them feel comfortable with themselves. And they actually talk around us. You know, you hear all this, like we, we say it all the time, you know, the conversation y'all have around the dinner table, the conversation y'all have in these spaces, not like with us removed y'all talk different. Well, in this space, because I had kind of made them comfortable with themselves. They were unfiltered. I mean, unfiltered. I heard all types of stuff, terrible things. Then the thing that really tore me up the most is that when Alton and Philando happened and Donald Trump happened, I had believed the best about these white people. And I gave them chance after chance. I mean, even in the midst of their apathy and their hostility, I kept showing up. I kept trying to reach them and teach them. I kept, I was trying to make them better for themselves and for their children and for the church that we were in. But then the more I tried to do better for them in ways they didn't do for themselves, the more I realized like it was harming me in the process. And one of the things that happened when I was preaching on unity I'll never forget preaching on unity and literally going back to this group the next week and hearing these diatribes against black people. And then in the context of the church, the next sermon series, after all this death happened, Donald Trump going on, the next sermon series on marriage. And I'm like, yo, we don't need to learn how to be married as people like we need to learn how to deal with this world that we have inherited. And I tried to do that work. And then I was characterized as much in college. I was characterized as a distraction, somebody immature. And when they started to do that, and I started to see Alton and Philando and others for who they were and started reading different, I realized that I could no longer give white people what they never deserved in the first place. I could not give them any more Of the best of myself. I couldn't give them any more of my brilliance. I couldn't give them the assurance that I was okay with what was going on. I, in that moment, I became angry and my anger made me change.
1: You write that the scales began to fall from your eyes and you couldn't run anymore. So Dante, would you mind reading for us the last paragraph on page 71?
2: I couldn't run anymore. I did not want to deal with what it would mean for Alton's body to become a mirror to see both myself and him and what the country thought and had done to both of us. He had become a mirror for me to see how tired I was of lying, of how profound my delusion was. And how little it protected me. He became a mirror for me to see how tired I was of performing. And preaching. And singing. And doing whatever would keep me secure around white Christians. I didn't want to admit that being around white Christians became a way to hide. And to run from all the lessons my parents taught me. I didn't want to be honest about how terrified I was. And yet, I was. And when my eyes beheld Alton, I could not run anymore. I often wonder what the trauma of being forced to endure such cruelty does to us. You know, we have normalized images and videos of dead Black children, women, and men taking flight across social media. It has become quite routine. It is a story as old as America itself. A national story. It is a story that we have been forced to deal with. Enslaved black bodies became dead black bodies. Hypersexualized black bodies became dead black bodies. Dangerous black bodies became dead black bodies. Segregated black bodies became dead black bodies. Educated black bodies became dead black bodies incarcerated black bodies became dead black bodies playful and prayerful black bodies became dead black bodies, black bodies marching in the street, preaching the good news of Jesus fighting for the right to vote, making lyrics and love songs. America made sure that they became dead, never to sing, never to love, never to dance. And never to rise again. Terror.
1: Mm, it's great. It's it's unbelievably moving stuff, Dante. It's as good a prose as I've I've read in a long time. And the title of your book is called Shouting in the Fire, which sort of brings me to James Baldwin, The yes. Fire Time. In the spiritual Mary, don't you weep? It's God gave Noah the Rainbow Sign. No more water, the fire next time. So I'm wondering, is this sort of a, a nod to Baldwin and shouting in the fire is that we, we are in the fire. It's not the indeed. fire next
2: time, right? Yeah, indeed. And Jasmine Ward beautifully curated and edited this incredible collection called The Fire This Time, where collection and cohort of contemporary Black writers wrote in homage of James Baldwin in reflection on our current moment. And it is a beautiful, beautiful collection. And I think Jasmine Ward did this collection and it is so beautifully written because to think about shouting in the fire, to think about the fire this time is not just simply to tell the story of how black people and thinking about the language of black bodies as shadow, as, as capital, as, as criminal in this country. It's not just simply telling the way that we are dead or the terror that we face, but it is also telling the ways in which we live. So, for me to talk about shouting in the fire is in reflection of the story in the Hebrew Bible of the three Hebrew boys, and I think this is what people miss about this narrative. A lot of times, when people read my book, I, I am um, I am impressed. I'm not to say that when people read it. they oftentimes kind of really focus on the fire in general as a thing that destroys but for me this fire and thinking in the context of this 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 narrative of black life in the reflection of the three human boys the fire is a place of revelation of how we live so when Baldwin I I love this. I might go on a tangent because I love talking about the fire next time. Baldwin is central to my research. I'm literally doing my thesis project on Baldwin right now. I would tell everybody to revisit the fire next time and go to two places in the fire next time, which shape how I crafted as a piece of literature shouting in the fire. There's one verse, which is the epigraph of my text. Here you were to be loved, to be loved, baby. Hard, hard love at once. To strengthen you against a loveless world. So, Baldwin is living within the tension of what it means to be alive in a context in which you are not loved. But what Baldwin finally lands on is that even when you are in a context where you are not loved, where oftentimes, like right now, you're living in a place where books are being banned, voting rights are being curtailed, Uh, we're still dealing with people like Amir Locke and him being. Murdered like Breonna Taylor and George Floyd in this context where no-knock warrants and qualified immunity is a reality and we're dead, we're, where we're living inside of the context where this world is so loveless and it causes us to not love ourselves. It causes us to harm ourselves. It causes us to become uh, terrible to one another and it causes us to always be resisting the terrible logics and limited imaginations and the violence. But Baldwin fully and finally lands on this reality that even though you are in the loveless, World, you are here. Here you are to be loved. Then he ends the book with he's looking at these wine stained hallways and he wonders, looks at his homies who are playing games, who are creating life inside of a context of Harlem where they have been systematically left behind, but they still show up every day and live. And he asks the question what will happen to all that beauty? for indeed Black people are beautiful. So t- for me to sh- write Shouting in the Fire and to name it Shouting in the Fire is for me to talk about how I found out once again that we were indeed beautiful and that we live and that we achieve freedom and that the full and final reality is not terror in our lives, but is that we are alive and that we are loved and that we, as I start the book, our lives are not just lessons. Our lives are not just that, but we are worthy of the deepest love that any of us have to offer. Mm-hmm. And so when I thought about Baldwin, when I thought about the black tradition that I'm writing in, like Kiese Layman, D Sha Y'all, Eddie Glauddy, Monty Perry, Robert Jones, James Baldwin, Tony Morrison, Tony K. Mombara, all Alice Walker, all these brilliant, brilliant luminaires, shouting in the fire an American epistle is an homage to them and the way they taught me how to love and to be Black and alive and free.
1: It's a great book, and I invite everybody to read it. You captivated my imagination in so many ways. There's so much to talk about in this book that we don't have time. Your chapter on terror, your chapter on rage, but I want to take us out on an optimistic note where you talk about faith and love and hope and learning how to be a black American Christian. So can you talk a little bit about
2: that? Yeah, and the, when I think about this question, I have to think about Tony Morrison writing paradise, which sits on my desk right now, beat up and read through. She has this quote. She said that that Jesus had been free from white religion. And he wanted these kids to know that they did not have to beg for respect. It was already in them and they needed only to display it. And when I think about faith and hope and shouting in the fire and me utilizing the epistolatory form, these kind of memoir and essays and American epistle, I think about Morrison and the ways in which my faith was given to white religion and formed in right religion. But I think about the ways in which Morrison talks about me being liberated and knowing that I did not have to beg for respect. I didn't have to prove myself. I didn't have to give people what they never deserved, but that it was already in me. And the only thing I needed to do was this, to look for it, to find it and to display it. And I think about my own faith story and hope. And for me, so much of my hope as people who follow my work, I write, you know, it's Jesus and James Baldwin, which is a shout and a nod to black religion and black literature. It's about the ways in which black women in their womanist theological reflection show me about the ways in which Jesus deconstructed Toxic masculinity, white supremacy, terrible toxic religion, and embodied wholeness, liberation, and love. It is about the ways in which people like James Cone and black liberation theologians taught me about being black in America, but that our black life is sacred and that we needed to act and and show up in the world as if it was. It was like Renita Weems who who would tell me that Dante, through her writing, not actually to me, but like as I'm listening to her, it's as if she's speaking to me. Dante, you don't have to cut yourself off from your blackness to be Christian, but you need to deal with yourself as a black man and the way you as a black man we become toxic. So you need to form yourself in listening to black women and black gay people and black trans people and reshape how you understand your faith rather than seeing faith and hope as something to be controlled and more as a world to be explored. So as I end this book, on the chapter breath it is as if I uncover and reveal so many things that have us in a chokehold as it relates to faith, but the ways in which me returning home, me returning to black literature, me returning to our black life, me returning back to the worlds and the art and the love and the complexity and the beauty, which we No is ours, how we took the little things of life and turned it black. It was in that journey home that I said, we catch our breath again. And so for me, when I think about us in this moment, we find ourselves in the hope for me is within the living It is in what we create. It is in the ways we fail and get better. It is in the ways we grow old, but also grow up. It is in the ways that we dislodge ourselves from competition and create real community. It is the ways in which we are liberated from shame and blame and and, and toxicity and ushered into love and a deeper experience where we don't have to prove ourselves, but whatever we look for is already within us. And we only need to look close enough to display it. And that faith That hope is about shouting in the fire. Dante, you are alive. You got better in the process. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing to inherit and give away. And for me, that's love. Mm.
1: Dante Stewart, it's a wonderful read. It's an instructive read. The book is entitled Shouting in the Fire, an American epistle. I am so grateful for you to have taken all this time to be with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Oh, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to the listeners, I do this after every interview. To those who are listening and tapped into this podcast, thank you so much. You know, in these moments, we need people who are tapped into us, who create community, who show up continually, who rate, who like, who share, who listen. So thank you for your love.
1: That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.